You're listening to Tech Talks Pandemic, a podcast project of the Women's High Tech Coalition and Wiley Connected, a platform of podcasts on tech, law, and policy produced by Wiley Ryan, a Washington, D.C. law firm. In Tech Talks Pandemic, the public and private sectors come together to chat about the government response to the coronavirus and how tech, big and small, and across industries is stepping up to help. I'm Christina Wilcox, Executive Director of the Women's High Tech Coalition. We are a nonprofit, 501c3 nonpartisan organization founded to promote the exchange of ideas among leaders in the public and private sectors, whose focus is technology, innovation, and the development of public policy. Learn more about us at womenshightech.org. I'm Megan Brown, board member of Women's High Tech and a partner at Wiley Ryan. Wiley Ryan's a law firm at the nexus of technology, law, and policy with a uniquely DC perspective. You can find us at wiley.law. We're delighted to bring you Tech Talks Pandemic. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another Tech Talks Pandemic podcast put on by the Women's High Tech Coalition and Wiley Ryan. Today, we're really delighted to have Congresswoman Susan Brooks join me. She represents Indiana's 5th Congressional District, and that district includes urban, suburban, and rural counties in central Indiana, including the north side of Indianapolis. Prior to being in Congress, she was a deputy mayor of Indianapolis, and she was the United States attorney for the Southern District of Indiana for six years. She also was a community college administrator, and so she draws on all that experience presently on the House Energy and Commerce Committee and in the Health, the Communications and Technology subcommittees, all of which have interests in the current COVID pandemic and response. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here and for your commitment to the Women's High Tech Coalition during your time in Congress. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Megan. Hope you and your family are safe and healthy. Likewise, hope you are managing this whole work from home. Um, You are, like others in Congress, in your home district now. Can you shed a little light on how Indianapolis area is doing and how maybe this is affecting you and your family? Thank you for that question. I have a very diverse district. I have the northern third of the city of Indianapolis so a highly densely populated area. That is actually what I would say has been the epicenter of the cases in Indiana. The state of Indiana has uh, over 16,000 cases and uh, Marion County has, you know, near 5,000 or more of those cases. We've had sadly 901 deaths, you know, but each day we have those numbers that are updated. But the suburban counties, and I happen to live in Hamilton County, have also experienced you know, significant numbers of cases, 750 or so in the county I live in. So the suburbs where you know many people happen to work in Indianapolis have certainly had their challenges. The rural counties, not as much. We've had one rural county that has had, uh, well, we've had a couple of rural counties with outbreaks, and Indiana happens to have two of the pork processing plants in the country, and there have been, as you might know, significant outbreaks at our meat processing facilities across the country. And so the Midwest and the Dakotas have really had some significant cases. So that, and and those areas have actually, those processing plants have closed down. So we're starting to see, and while that's not my district, it's a significant issue for the state and truly for the nation when it comes to food supply. But I would say that we have a stay-at-home order until May 1st right now by Governor Holcomb. The city of Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett has just extended it till May 15th. 
for the city of Indianapolis. Um, but we'll see what happens uh, on May 1st as to whether or not the governor begins to do a slow reopening of parts of the state. I, but clearly, Indianapolis will not be reopening, and I'm certain that is with you know the governor's approval. Yeah, it's interesting to see the communities across the United States dealing with this in in their varied ways. It's certainly a reminder of, to me, being in the D.C. area, of the importance of your local government to handle some of these issues. They're really on the front lines. How they really are. How's your family doing? What's your work at home situation like? Well, thank you. My children are older. Um, my son, though, is a teacher um, up in Alaska, and so he has been doing you know remote learning. Um, and I really, my hat's off to the educators who have had to transition pretty dramatically while college educators maybe were used to doing some of it online. I wouldn't say that most elementary and high school teachers were used to that. So, um, and, and he's been actually quite busy. My daughter is in medical supply sales business, and so she can't go into the hospitals for the visits. And so like everybody else, they're working remotely, communicating with customers and students. And my husband does most of his work from home. So it's been something new for me to come home and work from home also. I had to find my quiet space um, <laughs> where I wouldn't be distracted by him and the dog. And But it's it's been fine. But it definitely has been a huge adjustment. You know, I think daily walks outside and trying to get fresh air are critically important. But I've been remarkably surprised how busy members of Congress have been, how many phone calls we're on, how much we're interacting with constituents, whether it's hospitals, businesses, nursing homes, our, our local government officials, federal officials. We're participating in conference calls with our committees, most of us are, or roundtable discussions. We're, we're participating in phone conferences with our own conferences, Republicans and Democrats. Some are bipartisan, where we have administration officials brief us we're doing interviews. We're, we're really busy. <laughs> really busy. As a taxpayer, I kind of like that idea that you guys are, are still hustling, but I'm sure it is challenging and taxing to try and do all this from far. Um, and we do look forward to here in D.C. when you guys come back, things may return a little bit to normal. So the purpose of the Tech Talks pandemic podcast that we put together is to have tech leaders and policymakers talk about how tech is enabling responses to COVID-19. And I was curious for your thoughts, you know, you've been a leader on tech issues, workforce education issues. How do you see technology supporting pandemic response these days? Well, the, one of the most important things in any pandemic response is communication. Communication, communication, communication. People have tremendous fear. People are uncertain about whether it's their own health situation or whether it is their job, the status of their job, or the status of their benefits if they have been laid off. And so um, technology, I think, has been key during this pandemic to keep people connected. People are um, now relying on, you know, methods of communication that we've not relied on, whether it's Zoom meetings, Microsoft Teams, whether it's WebEx, whether it's you name it, people are Skype are using new methods of communication and staying in touch like they've not used before. But I will also say that telehealth has become a significant way for the healthcare providers to be interacting 
with patients or with people who have concerns. And that is um, so critically important. Where telehealth has been around for some time, I don't think the medical community was even comfortable like they are becoming comfortable now in using telehealth services to some degree. But I think what it's also uh, demonstrated to us is we must, must close that digital divide in the country. There are still too many spots in the country where we don't have accessibility to technology. And I want to commend the internet and the cell providers who are doing a great job, whether it's opening up Wi-Fi hotspots so people can access the internet if they need it. So, you know, kids, we've got hotspots deployed in school buses right now as they are traveling to certain communities and allowing kids access to, you know, their educations. I think that's critically important. And I, I think that the Keeping America Connected pledge and not disconnecting individuals right now is critically important. If they can't pay their bills during this pandemic, I want to commend the industry for, you know, making sure that people can stay connected. Critically important. Health concerns, education concerns, mm -hmm. benefits concerns, employment concerns, and, and just getting the information from public officials. That's a big, big, big deal communicating by government officials during a pandemic, whether it's your local, you know, mayor or county council members, or whether it is your state officials instructing you as to what's happening in your state, and of course, the president, vice president, and the task force members informing the country, and whether or not you're getting that on television, through an iPad, through your laptop, or through your phone, I would say there has never been a time in our country's history where being connected is so important. I totally agree with all of that. I think from your perch on energy and commerce, which is a super important committee in, in my world, which is typically sort of the telecom kind of space, uh, ISP space, you mentioned telehealth and you mentioned uh, digital divide and some of what the FCC chairman uh, Pai got done with the Keeping America Connected pledge. Overall, Congresswoman, are you seeing what you want to see from the federal agencies, whether it's on telehealth and sort of trying to remove barriers to maybe the, the, the medical community that maybe is scared of a HIPAA violation, for example, or making a regulatory misstep? Are you satisfied with what you see from the federal government in this pandemic, or are you looking for more or something different? Well, I do um, want to commend uh, Health and Human Services for um, really relaxing and removing barriers um, for telehealth services in particular. In the past, it has required video conferencing, for instance, in order for a provider to get reimbursed or paid for that service. And I think CMS and Administrator Seema Verma, who happens to be a constituent of mine, by the way, <laughs> and someone that I have known since the late 90s, we both worked in the city of Indianapolis, Mayor Goldsmith administration. I'm very proud of the manner in which uh, CMS has really worked incredibly hard to try to assist hospitals, nursing homes, and healthcare providers in providing and making sure that patients have access to care in the safest manner possible, but yet they really have broken down those barriers and they are focused, particularly, for instance, in our nursing homes, which have Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in many parts of the country, have been a number of hot spots, including in my own district. One of the nursing homes in my district has been a significant hot spot, but they have been completely focused, CMS, on infection control measures 
and on making sure that nursing homes are very focused on that, more so than all of the other rules and regulations. They have done things like allowing family members to go through some training to actually be caregivers in nursing homes because, you know, we do have significant workforce issues in a number of our senior living communities around the country. And so they have tried to find ways to safely involve family members as well. So they, I, you know, I really do think that from the healthcare perspective, HHS has done really an amazing job trying to provide the flexibility and the changes in the rules and regulations. And I think it will demonstrate maybe going forward how healthcare can and should change. Mm -hmm. That maybe there were too many rules and regulations on our healthcare providers. Those have been, I think, the true heroes in this pandemic. All of those men and women on the front lines, nurses, doctors, techs, respiratory therapists, everyone from the people who are keeping the hospitals clean to the cafeteria workers at the hospitals. I mean, they are really on the front lines helping families. And, uh, and I think going forward, we may have a very different view of our healthcare system and what we need to do to make sure that they have the most flexibility to care for patients the way they believe they need to be cared for. One thing, uh, Congresswoman, that occurred to me while you were talking just now is, you know, the regulatory risks and the, the barriers, but also, you know, a lot of companies that, you know, we deal with, that my colleagues at other firms are dealing with, are very concerned about downstream liability, whether it's as a government contractor or right. um, some sort of liability. I've always had the the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, top of mind for some folks. Would you, do you think Congress will be open perhaps to looking at liability protections down the road? Because I do perceive that those fears are a barrier to some speed and some willingness by some companies to to get involved, even if they really want to, they can't get the risk low enough. I completely agree. And I do think it is something that Congress must take up. We gave Good Samaritan protection in, I've actually lost track, which CARES package we gave it, you know, we, we voted on, you know, several different pieces of legislation now, and it might've been in the first one. And that was to take people who had retired from the medical field to bring them back and to allow them to volunteer and to um, ensure uh, that they would not be sued, that they would have good Samaritan protection, liability protection for stepping up and stepping back in the front lines. And I do hope that in this very next package that I anticipate will be coming, that we do provide more liability protection, whether it's for companies that are trying to, you know, maybe some of your clients that are trying to retool what they make or what they do to to help and to get involved, I think it's going to be critically important. Now is not the time for the legal community, and I'm a lawyer as well, so I have tremendous respect for lawyers, but now is not the time for the legal community to be pouncing on whether it's medical professionals or companies who are trying to assist their community and their neighbors. Now is not the time. Mistakes are going to be made whenever you are in something as unprecedented as this. Mistakes are going to be made, whether it's in manufacturing production, whether it's in a diagnosis, whether it's in a record being shipped that possibly shouldn't have moved. This is not the time to um, open up those lawsuits and open up all the class actions I'm beginning to hear about. I do think Congress needs to step in. 
And you're certainly no stranger to these issues. I mean, you've been working on the public policy issues related to um, pandemic response for years. Um, and I thought maybe it would be helpful for you to put that into some context because it's not as if, you know, there's not resources and protocols around. Um, I, so maybe you could talk about some of the work you have done with uh, Congresswoman Eshoo on those issues. Thank you. Um, Congresswoman Eshoo has become one of my closest friends in Congress. Um, she and I began working on the reauthorization of what is referred to as PAPA. And PAPA stands for Pandemic All-Hazard Preparedness Act. Congressman Mike Rogers from Michigan, when he retired, had been working on these issues for years with Congresswoman Eshoo, and he passed the baton to me um, he, as I was moving to energy and commerce to that committee. Because I'd been a former U.S. attorney, I had actually, I went through learning so much about biodefense after our country had went through the anthrax attacks after 9-11. And so I truly had some background in biodefense issues. And so I took up uh, that mantle when I joined ENC. And we did get the PAPA reauthorized. It was signed into law in June of 19. Unfortunately, it had been, it had lapsed in 2018. We had some difficulties with the Senate, but then we did get it done. So people should know that our country has been funding the strategic national stockpile for many, many years. We have been funding things such as hospital preparedness grants. We had been working on issues of uh, biodefense for, for many years, actually, since the anthrax attacks, I would say. And now, would I say that we've funded them sufficiently? No, we haven't. We have not always put enough funding because of so many funding demands it's very hard for Congress to, I think, engage in preparedness, in getting prepared for things. We are much better at responding to things than we are at preparing for things. So, for instance, massive funding went to the Ebola response. Massive funding went to the Zika response. But we did create, many years ago, an entity in HHS called BARDA, the Biodefense Advanced Research Development Authority. And that is the entity that works with the private sector to be working on and thinking about medical countermeasures for diseases we know about and potentially getting ready for diseases we don't know about. And they have produced many therapeutics, many vaccines, many you know, diagnostic tests for our strategic national stockpile. And so making sure that we have funding of BARDA, because government doesn't produce all these therapeutics and vaccines. It's our amazing pharmaceutical companies and our amazing diagnostic companies. I'm very proud to represent Roche Diagnostic. I represent many of Eli Lilly's employees. Uh, they're based in downtown Indianapolis. Those are the entities that create the solutions, and that's what we're seeing now. But they need incentivized by the government to get into this space where there's not a natural customer base. Mm -hmm. People don't buy these things until we, as a country or, you know, states or locales need them. That's what PAPA has been about, is readying us for this moment. Well, that was a super helpful background. I was less familiar with PAPA before, and it's encouraging that that exists, and I'll be looking to dig into that. If we could pivot just a little bit, you have been, for a long time, a champion of workforce issues near and dear to your heart, I think, from your time at 
the college. Otherwise, I've heard you speak at women's high tech events repeatedly and passionately about retraining and redeployment. What are the what's the federal government doing right now to address unemployment and workforce challenges in the pandemic? I have to tell you that uh, the unemployment numbers are absolutely breaking my heart. Um, before this pandemic, we were enjoying as a country historically low unemployment. If people wanted a job and or wanted to get retrained to get back into the workforce, you know, there were uh, unbelievable employment opportunities out there for them. And so the CARES Act did, um, we knew that uh, because of the stay-at-home orders, um, that people were going to suffer incredible difficulties from being laid off for no fault of their own. So we did, as most of your listeners know, expanded the unemployment benefits, but we expanded them in ways that had not been all around before. For instance, the gig workers, independent contractors, the self-employed, they have traditionally not been eligible for unemployment benefits. And so we made them eligible. Now, what the difficulty has been is most state systems were not stood up to accommodate this type of worker. And so that has caused problems in them getting their benefits as soon as other people who, you know, work for more traditional employers. But it obviously provides additional benefits to each recipient, up to four months, an additional 13 weeks of unemployment benefits after the state benefits run out. Uh, so people who were employed on March 1st and have lost their job due to the coronavirus, this bill will provide paid leave for them as well. So we, we tried to do as much, whether it's paid sick leave, whether it's unemployment. We've increased the unemployment by $600 per week. That's also caused some challenges for those businesses that are through the Paycheck Protection Program, want to pay their employees and put them back on their payrolls. Some of them are very frustrated because they realize that their employers, employees rather, are making more money on unemployment than they might have made, um, you know, through the Paycheck Protection Program. And so that has been a challenge, uh, you know, pro an unintended consequence certainly of our, you know, of our speed in which we stood up Paycheck Protection Program and the unemployment benefits and cares. But I do think it's really important. But I want to encourage people to get off those unemployment rolls and get back to that business that wants to bring them back or that wants to pay them again, because that is long-term. Unemployment benefits are not long-term enough. And we've got to show the strength um, of our business, those small businesses in particular, in getting their employees back on their payroll so they can be ready to go as soon as they're able to open. Yeah, I think the phrase unintended consequences really sums up a lot. And we'll, we'll learn a lot as we unpack. And as you know, I've seen the House is standing up a select committee to do oversight on COVID that will no doubt be partisan, but also may shed some light on things that were hastily done. But uh, I think the law of unintended consequences is in full force right now. Maybe in the vein of unintended consequences, or maybe just sad consequences, you are leaving the House of Representatives. I was disappointed. The Women's High Tech Coalition is disappointed to see you go. Lots of folks think that's a loss for women in the Republican Party and in leadership, um, and perhaps a blow to bipartisanship, because you were a very bipartisan member of Congress. Uh, you're on the Problem Solvers Caucus. You partnered with Susan Del Bene in the Women's High Tech Caucus. Can you shed a little light or share your thoughts on what you see for the future of bipartisanship after this pandemic, right? This is a weird 
time you guys in Congress are all working from home. Do you think this helps, hurts? Are you optimistic, pessimistic as you prepare to to move on from the House of Representatives? Well, thank you for those kind words. I came to Congress to get things done. When I ran in 2012, I've always I've tried hard to model my bipartisanship work after Senator Richard Luger, who I have always viewed as an incredible role model in our state and country. But I, And he taught us all how important friendships were across the aisle. And so I made a point of that when I came to Congress, have been really so pleased to, uh, to have so many friendships like Susan Del Bene, who I have tremendous respect for, and I've loved being a co-chair with her of the Women in the High Tech Caucus. And so I think, and I, because I think we get more done. And I, I talk about that wherever I am, um, that it is so important to get things done. The American people want to see us get things done. And I have noticed actually significant bipartisanship on the bipartisan calls that we are on. Um, you could not tell, if you don't know who is speaking, the questions say that we might have to the administration, you can't tell who's Republican and who's Democrat for the most part. And I think your listeners should be very proud of that. People are very focused on their districts. And whether their district is hard blue, hard red, purple, whatever it might be, it is coming very, it's become so obvious to me on these calls that people are passionate about representing their district. And their district to them is not Republican, Democrat, um, or, or, you know, purple. They are trying very hard to represent the area of the country or their community and to share with administration officials what is happening in their community. I've been on a number of bipartisan calls since this started. And even when I'm on calls, for instance, yesterday I was on a call with Congressman Ted Deutsch and from Florida, and he and I served on the Ethics Committee for many years together. And when it was over, it just felt so good to hear his voice that, you know, we talked on the phone when it was over just to catch up. So I, I think the pandemic doesn't know a political party, and I think legislators are, are really trying to give the American people the relief that they needed. And I think the CARES Act, while yes, it was one of the most expensive pieces of legislation ever passed in the history of our country, we actually came together very quickly because we saw the American people needed relief. They were going to need help. And, and we've come together on now a few occasions to do this. So I think we've demonstrated that it can be done. I hope that that attitude certainly goes forward after not only this congressional session is over, and I never dreamed that this is how my term in Congress would end. But I hope to stay engaged in these issues after I leave Congress because it's something I care about and I'm passionate about. But I also will uh, try and remind people uh, how important bipartisanship is. I do, however, want to let you know and your listeners know that I'm very proud. I happen to have been the recruitment chair for the National Republican Congressional Committee. <laughs> and while we are in an election year, we have an unprecedented number. I believe we've had 289 women file to run as Republicans across the country. And so I am hopeful that far, far more Republican women will win in this next election cycle and will come uh, take my place and, and join the other amazing women that we have in Congress. So I, I'm really hopeful it's the highest number we've ever had run, and I'm very proud of that. 
Well, I really appreciate your optimism and I hope uh, uh, about bipartisanship generally and about um, about all the things we've talked about, because I think one takeaway, at least for me, is that we are seeing a lot of good things, right? The embracing of technology, the recognition that government can move nimbly and this bipartisan attitude that you're seeing. I think it's all it's it's a nice little bit of optimism in an otherwise kind of a dreary and uh, long slog we're all in. Congressman, thank you so much for joining on behalf of the Women's High Tech Coalition. Thank you for your support over many years. And thank you for being in our Tech Talks pandemic podcast. And uh, best of luck in continuing your work from home. We hope that you will be back in D.C. with your colleagues soon and safely. Well, thank you, Megan, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thanks to the Women High Tech Coalition and all the excellent work that you do. And I hope that everyone stays safe, healthy, and really positive. We've got to get through this together because we are in this together. Thanks so much, Congresswoman. Okay, thanks, Megan. Thank you for tuning in to Tech Talks Pandemic, a collaboration between the Women's High Tech Coalition and Wiley Ryan. If you enjoyed this episode of Tech Talks Pandemic, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to womenshightech.org and wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Tech Talks Pandemic podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.